Hello and welcome to Sex Please. I'm your host, Vanessa Carlisle. I'm here in studio with hardworking daddy, Danny Cruz. Hi. And our broad in the booth, Chris Ann Eastwood. Sex. I just <laughs> she, got the microphone. She was in the booth a second ago. <laughs> you know what? I was doing Pilates. I'm sorry. I was just doing my Pilates. I got to get my workout in. Get you know. your kegels done before yeah. the show, Chris Ann. Sorry. Sex Please is part of Safe Harbor here on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We are a live call-in show. It is Wednesday night. It's midnight. I know it's technically Thursday, uh, but we're here. We're here to talk to you. So if at any point during the next hour you want to talk to us, call 818-985-5735 and we'll talk about sex together. Our show topic tonight is heterosexuality. Ew. Wow. Never, we, you know, we never see that in the media. We never read about it in literature. I mean, I'm, I'm baffled. I'm baffled. What is it? <laughs> you might wonder what three non-heterosexual people might be able to say about heterosexuality. I almost thought you were doing a joke. So three non-heteros, you know, <laughs> going to a bar, a heterosexual bar. What do we do? It's just funny. It's funny on its own to me. If anyone thinks we're misrepresenting them or, you know, we have some problems with our knowledge base, please feel free to call and yeah. offer your knowledge about heterosexuality tonight, 818-985-5735. I just want to let you know that I've dabbled in heterosexuality. No. Yes. Yes. I have. Most people have, haven't they? Goldster gay. Are you (laughs) really? You never even made you never even played spin the bottle with a girl at a theater party? Mm. No. I've had sex with a person who had a vagina, but a woman, no. No. Wow. Wow, you're you just, cool. His little unicorn horn just got longer. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> Tonight, we're hearing from Hannah Blank. Uh, she's the author of Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. We're going to be listening to one of my favorite songs by Dead Prez. Um, and we're going to be talking with you, our listeners, about what heterosexuality is, where it came from, and how it functions to serve the state. Yeah. yeah. Thank goodness. I, I was hoping there was that element in that. This is what we call edutitillation. Ow! But before all that, let's get our feet wet. Danny, you have some sex news? Yeah. First off, genetics. Ooh, teletype. Uh, the theory that there's a gay gene um, or chromosomal marker that makes a person gay uh, has been around for some time. Well, now researchers at Ilya State University in Georgia, the country, not the state, uh, say that about half of all heterosexual men and women would have to be carriers of the gene for same-sex attraction to remain present throughout the course of human history. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. Um, So in the study, geneticist uh, Georgi Chaladze, it's a Georgian name, uh, created a computer model that includes aspects of heredity and the tendency of homosexual men to come from larger families. He was curious... Uh, and I just lost my place. He's curious how gay men who are unlikely to have offspring of their own pass their genes mm-hmm. that would have to survive, evolutionarily speaking, uh, throughout history. Um, his theory is that gay men tend to come from larger families and that the genes responsible for homosexuality in men increase the number of children female family members have. Based on his calculations, male homosexuality is maintained in a population at low and stable frequencies 
if half the men and roughly more than half the women carry genes that predispose men to homosexuality. This is blowing my mind. This is blowing my mind right now. <laughs> well, he adds that straight men being carriers of this gene may explain why many more men report having had same-sex encounters or attractions than identify as gay or bisexual. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, he suggests that the carriers of the gene might manifest that interest in homosexual behavior without having an identity. Yeah. Let's all just let's all just remember that genes don't determine all of your stuff. They just give you the building blocks for this stuff. Well, you they make. make your ass look real sweet when they're tight. <laughs> they do. That's what I'm saying. Wherever gays come from, we're here. We have someone on the line. Well, good evening. Robert, are you driving north to San Francisco right now? Uh, yeah, I am, actually. How did I know? <laughs> what what's on your what's on your mind tonight, Robert? Well, I, shoot, you know, I want to talk about a couple things. Uh, my ex fiance that I just broke up with, she says that she. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the topic is. I just tuned in, but she says that she can't have. She needs more than like three orgasms just to feel comfortable, just to be in in just just to be alive with me. Like, I don't understand that. Bless her heart. Is three too much? You think that's too much? Are we having? Are you having conflict about other stuff in your relationship? Because honestly, people should have all the orgasms they need and want. Is my is my basic position? Uh, okay, look, I look, I, I I can get it down. Okay, I can put it down on on, on the average. You can you know you, I, you put down a heavy thing because you take care of your back muscles. Well, I take care of the woman first. You know, I make sure she comes before I come. Good for you. Oh. Good All for right. you. You know cool. what? I'm saying whether, good. Whether, whether, <laughs> cool. Whether, whether I have to think about the three stooges before I, you know, before I orgasm and all that stuff, I make sure the woman comes first. And I've been with this girl for at least four years. So I thought I was I, doing good. I thought I was doing good when she comes. And then she hits me with a bombshell saying, wait a minute. Um, I have to come three three times before I'm good. You you coming too fast. I'm like, why don't why don't you ask her to show you some ways to help her come more often and more easily? Just ask her. She already knows. I mean, are you, is she is she saying she wants to come three times during intercourse because because uh, yes. okay, so she wants to come three times before you ejaculate. Exactly. And so that and means you, you got to hold back. Exactly. I got to think of like, like three stooges, dead kitties, this, that, whatever, before I even. Yeah. Now, do her orgasms come quickly? Because my partner is multi-orgasmic, and they kind of come boom, boom, boom. Is what's the space between each orgasm? Um, I uh the first ones is about twenty minutes. Okay, and then, and then I know, and then I, you know, when I'm I'm, I'm stroking, I'm looking, I say, oh, she came. She tells me she came. I'm like, okay. Then I'm like, okay, she came. I can come too. I can come. Okay. So then I start thinking about, you know, whatever. And then I come and I think I did my job. Your then, job. Okay, sex is not your job, Robert. It's a beautiful thing you share with your partner, man. I don't even, well, it's my job. Yeah. Well, I hate my <laughs> Sex is your job. I mean, the sex is your job, right. But it's not Robert's job. Unless, that, are you a sex worker, Robert? Are you a sex worker? <laughs> Say that again. Are you a sex worker? Uh, no, not at all. Oh, because, uh, I, I mean, look, look, 
look, Rob, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 40s. She's in her 30s and stuff, so on and so forth. I study Kama Sutra, or I try to. You know, I study sex. You know, I do my best, you know, because it's all about the woman and so on and so forth. And I'm not selfish. I can be in... Robert, I'd like I'd like to just I'd like to just interrupt you here because I think you're I think you're on the right track overall. It sounds like you're really trying to pay attention to your female partners, and I think that's something that a heterosexual man to do that is already you're like you know you got your '70s feminist education down, and I think that's solid. Um, the right. next the next thing is that you got to trust this woman that she's telling you the truth about her body. There's no bombshell. There's no job. There's just a body that wants to feel good and wants to feel good with you. That's awesome. And so what you get to do now is discover more about her and her body, and that's a gift. So I really hope it goes well for you guys, and we're going to get back to our sex news now. Thanks, Robert. Ooh, um, I don't even know where to go from there. Um, <laughs> next story. Next story. Back in um, North Carolina. So, um, if Republican State Senator Buck Newton has his way, North Carolina will be known as the straight state. Uh, at a rally for supporters of a controversial new state law that bars transgender people from using the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity rather than the gender they were assigned at birth, Newton told the crowd to go home. Tell your friends and family who have to work today what this is all about and how hard we must fight to keep our state straight. Keep our state straight. Yeah. Keep your state straight. Straighten, straighten up your state. <laughs> Newton, who's the Republican nominee for attorney general in the state, said that supporters of the law have to be vigilant and keep their wives and sisters and their children from being exposed to, quote, the sexual predators in the bathroom. Wait, I'm sorry. What? This is the new boogeyman? This is new boogeyman. Sexual predators in the bathroom. Sexual That's predators. new? That's new? But now they come in the form of trans people, according to Mr. Newton. Mm-hmm. And what is he? who is Mr. Newton? So he is a current state senator. He is the Republican nominee for uh, attorney general of North Carolina. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, so he's going to be responsible for all them laws. Uh Though right after this was reported, um, he disputed the charge that he was homophobic because of his straight comments um, and said that to keep our state straight meant to keep men out of the ladies' room. I just, this is so ridiculous that I'm sitting here speechless. Like, keep our state straight just makes me want to vomit all over this microphone, which I'm not going to do. But I would like to, I would like to say that, uh, Straightness and heterosexuality are, we're using those terms interchangeably tonight, but heterosexuality is not the same as sexual dimorphism, which is that you need a male gamete and a female gamete to make a baby. That's a totally different thing from heterosexuality and straightness, which is what we're talking about tonight, which is the culture, the behaviors, the political impact, the economic impact, the importance of straight relationships um, in our culture. That's what we're talking about. So this is a pretty prime example of how the state wants to get involved in regulating human relationships. Absolutely. So mammals reproduce without the social organization of heterosexuality. Like people are going to have babies whether the state stays straight or not. Um, Heterosexuality is something that we make. We do it. We perform it. The way we do it in the U.S. right now has historical roots in the 19th century. The first time the word heterosexual was even used was in May of 1868. There's a birthday coming up. That's right. 
We are we're celebrating the eve of heterosexuality's 148th birthday tonight. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's only 148 years old because there's some biblical scholars who would say au contraire. Right. Well, we're talking about heterosexuality as an organization of the social world. And the first time that the word heterosexual was used was in 1868. So obviously there were um, one one man, one woman marriages. There were also polygamous marriages. There were all kinds of different ways to structure your social groups all over the world. Heterosexuality in the form that we think of it now as, as being a, monogam- a monogamous partnership between a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman is really pretty recent. And that's part of what Hannah Blank is going to help us think about tonight. Um, so let's hear from Hannah. She's going to use this term from cultural anthropology, which is doxa. Um, she'll explain it more, but for now, you might just want to think about doxa as the rules of culture that we follow, um, the stuff that everyone knows, the, the stuff that um, goes without saying. So who is Hannah Blank? She's a writer. She's a historian. She's affiliated with Emory University, and she's the author of a book called Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. And um, I caught up with her this morning, and I asked her some questions. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So your book is about um, heterosexuality as a concept and as a social structure, and I'm curious how you might describe for people some of the most common myths or misperceptions about heterosexuality as it's practiced right now in the U.S., I think the biggest myth about heterosexuality and the one that I encounter the most is the idea that heterosexuality is some sort of like a force of nature. It's just this thing that exists in the world, kind of like rocks or trees. And um, that it, how, how can you say that this is a new thing? How can you say that this has a short history? After all, haven't there always been heterosexuals? Because if there weren't heterosexuals, then how would we reproduce? And I always say to people, well, you know, like, dogs and cats and lizards and llamas and octopuses reproduce all the time and they don't have heterosexual llamas or heterosexual (laughs) octopuses there's a difference between heterosexuality the social construct that we use and that we talk about and that we, we use as a tool to help us organize how we think about sexuality and relationships and dimorphic sexual reproduction also fail to realize that you know heterosexuality does more than just regulating or have in fact it does a lot more than than reproduction um it's in fact you don't have to be heterosexual to reproduce um there are plenty of queer parents who reproduce just fine thank you very much um heterosexuality is about organizing relationships between people and historically it's about organizing things like money and labor. So there are all of these relationships, these social things that heterosexuality does for us, and we like to delude ourselves into thinking that it has this biological function that it really doesn't have. Um, Whether or not I was born with a particular set of inclinations around sexuality, um, I still, you know, am participating in this rhetoric around relationships and around how we organize our lives socially, whose relationships count, whose relationships matter, um, that has nothing to do with nature. Nature doesn't actually care. You know, a, a lightning bolt is no more or less likely to hit you based on who you sleep with. Um, 
How, how would you, for someone who's never heard this word, doxa, how would you describe what it is and how heterosexuality functions as a doxa? Well, we all know the word orthodox. And orthodox comes from the same root. You can hear it, the dox part in, the, in that word. And if you're orthodox, you follow all the rules. And doxa, literally in Greek, um, it's the stuff that everybody knows. Um, and in the formulation that I use it, um, it comes out of the work of the French uh, cultural and social anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu, and he talks about it as being the body of information that a particular culture takes for granted, the stuff that goes without saying. Um, and so, and you know, so observing the kinds of rules that go without saying in your community is what makes you orthodox. And so that's where how, a good way to understand that connection. Now, for somebody who doesn't share that base of things that go without saying, people who are orthodox may look very strange. Um, you know, as for instance, when you look at somebody who's Amish, um, the Amish are very orthodox to the, the, the rules and the ideas that go without saying in their community, um, which are not the same as the rules that go without saying in our, in our larger culture. And so they look strange to us, but to themselves, that, that's all completely logical. It makes perfect sense. Um, and none of it looks strange or odd in the slightest. And so doxa is difficult because when you're inside it, it's hard to see your own doxa. And that's actually one of the ways that you know that this is doxa, is that it appears to be nowhere and everywhere at the same time. It doesn't come, there's not like a central board of heterosexual doxa that sends out like leaflets to your house, right? Um, but it's everywhere, and you, all of us get those messages all the time, and it's so decentralized, and that's, that's why it means so much that these ideas are, you know, in the, in the water, as it were, mm-hmm. because that allows those ideas to seem to come from nowhere. That was Hannah Blank, author of Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. I'm Vanessa Carlisle, and you're listening to Sex, Please! on Safe Harbor here at KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake, and for everyone else in the world who has access to the Internet at kpfk.org. Thank you so much for listening tonight. We're live in studio. And if you would like to join our conversation about the origins and the effects of heterosexuality, please do call 818-985-5735. We'd like to talk to you. That was an interesting delineation that she gave of uh, what the construct of heterosexuality was meant to do, is meant to organize, she said, uh, for organizing relationships, money, labor, also can organize like the type of work people do within a family construct. Right. You she's know. really she's really thinking of it as a social organization and not as like a deep urge you feel in your gut to mate with this one person. Yeah. <laughs> that she's she's actually very not interested in in that in that form of romantic love as a defining purpose of heterosexuality, which I think is really interesting. So Shakespeare is just making it all up. People weren't falling in love and killing themselves about it. it I mean, oh, sure they were. Sure, I mean, this makes heterosexuality seem incredibly boring and 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 dumb and <laughs> and just like, you know. And no offense, straight people, uh, but it just it just you know makes it very it just makes it. 
I impressive. mean, yeah, the thing is, social constructs, when you talk about them as such, sound boring and dumb. People create passion within them, you know. So the social construct of marriage is such that it it functions for the state. It's a way to track property. It's a way to, you know, keep track of who's who's owning space. But at the same time, if people are going to be in a situation where they're forced to be intimate with somebody, they're going to figure out a way to have feelings that they can live with, you know, or they won't. So, I, I mean, I think that part of what we're seeing when we talk to someone like Hannah Blank, who's studying this from the perspective of history and cultural anthropology, part of what we see is that feelings are cultural. You know, they the way that we have feelings is, is cultural. It's not it's not just it's not just nature. It's not just that you have a spinal cord and it's sending these signals to your brain willy nilly. You know, like the the way that we respond to stimuli is is based on how we were trained. And that's I mean, she says this thing about doxa. It's so interesting. Like what what is the doxa that we're surrounded by? I keep thinking about the billboards for all of the romantic comedies and how horrible it is to think about how much everyone just wants the man and the woman to get together and fuck so bad that it takes two hours of loving and hating to make it happen. <laughs> you know, it could happen so quickly and easily if they just asked each other nicely. <laughs> as long as they're getting consent, you know. But then you don't have a movie. You have to have your meet cute and your this and that. Sure. I mean, you know, you know, Robert, uh, what's his name? What's the guy? Rob, the guy who does the story thing. What's flip? I forgot his flipping name. The guy, Robert McKee's story, you have to have that arc, that rising, those incidents, uh, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Sure. I mean, everything is better when it's cinematic. That's at least what we're being told. Let's see what let's see what Doug from Ukaipa has to say. Hello, Doug, are you on the line? I am. How are you doing this evening? Well, uh, I was going through the channels of my radio, and I stopped on yours, and I thought, whoa, this is interesting, and... Um, but I was a little confused about your topic because is it actually about heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, or exactly? I'm a little confused. We're talking about heterosexuality. We we have um, another interview clip we're going to play a little bit later from Hannah Blank, who wrote a book called Straight, the uh, surprisingly short history of heterosexuality. And so she's been studying heterosexuality from the perspective of it being a way to organize social relationships, not just um, a way pr for people to, to reproduce. Interesting, because uh, what really intrigued me is uh, I've now been a widower for about four and a half years, but I've always been of the bisexual bent, uh, and I suppose because I was born a hermaphrodite, and yet it's interesting what you say about that because friends have said, well, why'd you marry a lady? I said, well, I was in love with her and it worked well. And, and so I was just curious because the way you're talking, I'm like, hmm, is it meant for me to call or, <laughs> you know, just what's up? Because, uh, like I say, what you were saying just about at midnight, I thought, very interesting. Thank you. I'm so glad you called, Doug. Glad you called. Did you did you and your wife consider your relationship to be a heterosexual relationship? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt because she knew about you know my past. But she says, well, you know, that's then. And I said, well, you know, I said, uh, I mean, it's like I said, I've always been on the middle of the fence. But at the same time, uh, just a little history. I actually fell in love with her when I was all nine years old, and that was 45 years ago, and. Um, Maybe maybe you can call back next week when we're talking about sexuality and childhood. 
Um, yeah, that. Uh, now, what nights do you do this? Because um, Sex Please is on Wednesday nights at midnight. I'll have to remember that because you uh, will. <laughs> well, you know, it it, it just surprised me because you know, like I was going going through the radio, and I'm like, somebody's talking on the FM frequency. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then you know, then I stopped and listened, and uh, whoever, whoever the guy is, I just heard laugh. You know, um, I can tell by the way he talks that we've got something in common. <laughs> and you know, there is one other thing I'm curious about. Maybe one of you could tell me. All right, one more question, Doug. What is, what is your what is your one more curiosity? Is uh, you know, gay friends I've had in the past, they say, "Well, you act totally straight." So what? Is, why would they say that? I, I mean, I've you know. <laughs> Doug, you were like one week too late. We did that show on bisexuals and why people say shitty things to bisexuals a week ago. Well, you well, know, that's we're saying that my history, a day late and a dollar short. You're <laughs> never too late. I mean, you know, I, and, 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 you know, since we're talking about heterosexuality, is straight acting an insult? I don't know if it's an insult or not. Uh, no, I don't did think so. Did you feel insulted? No. I mean, it's definitely a way to label somebody, perhaps, when they have no need for the label. So, you know, for me, acting straight is my job. I, you know, I've, I've had to study what it means to be a heterosexual femme. I've done a lot of work to figure out how to do heterosexual femininity in a way that is convincing, satisfying, fulfills fantasy roles. Um, and so when I think about someone saying, oh, you're really acting straight, I think, huh, I must, I must have left a little work on me. <laughs> I got to get that. I got to get that piece off, you know, because part of it for me is that I, there's a lot of rules for heterosexuality. Acting straight means you're following a lot of rules. And maybe that's a good thing for you right now. Maybe you need to pass. Maybe you need to seem straight in order to clear your head and get your work done or something. But um, but I think for a lot of us, acting straight is, you know, something we choose to do, and it's kind of hard, and it's worth compensation. Well, you know, it's more like just the opposite, because in the early 80s, I was kind of out about the fact that I was on both sides of the fence, and then because of the stigma, I went back in, but about a year ago, I thought, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks, and, and the ones that know, they're so surprised, like you, and I'm like, they said, you act so straight, and I said, well, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Don't believe yeah. don't believe all the straight that you see. Thank well, you no, so I, much. No. <laughs> thank you so much for calling, Doug. I hope to speak with you again. Well, thank you and and I'm uh, glad I discovered you. I I can tell you I will be, you know, usually I'm up this time right, so I will be listening in the future for sure. All right. Thank you. Good Thanks, night. Doug. Hey, have a good night. That was a great call. And yeah. you know, what a great story. And what, a, you know, the, it's just the listeners we have and the stories that, are, I mean, there's a million stories in the Naked City, but, you know, that's what the beauty of this show, that people are feel free to call in and ask great questions and get great information from you guys about sex. And this is so just, this is a proud moment. I'm very happy. Thank you, Doug. I'm, I'm quelling. In the middle of Passover, I'm quelling. Chrisanne just did some Pilates, and she's really, she's, I know. she's feeling My, my feeling endorphins her, her are love. up. Everything's, everything's up. Thank you. Thank you. Everything is up. We are talking about heterosexuality tonight on Sex, Please. This is KPFK, Los Angeles, 90.7 FM. If you'd like to join our conversation, please call in, 818-985-5735. We are live late Wednesday night here 
And we, after this break, we're going to be hearing again from Hannah Blank, the author of Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. But before we hear from Hannah again, I'm going to introduce tonight's song. So every week on Sex, Please, I will play you a song. This song has traditionally been an anti-rape culture sexy song. A song that you can comfortably get it on to um, that encourages consent and that encourages communication among partners. So I've been really trying to play a lot of, um, you know, queer artists who don't always get it on the radio. Um, But tonight I'm going to play Dead Prez, who I love and adore, and their song Mind Sex. And the reason I chose this song is because in our conversation about heterosexuality tonight, um, we're focusing on some of the drier cultural aspects, some of the parts of heterosexuality that mm, make it feel sort of coercive and compulsory um, for for us queer people here. Um, but I also want to be able to acknowledge that there are parts of heterosexuality that people really enjoy, that heterosexuals themselves really enjoy. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> you know? They really like each other when they like it. And uh, and I want to be able to support that whenever it's happening. So this is Dead Prez with mind sex and a form of heterosexual uh, love and sexuality that fits right in on Sex, Please. Hi, this is Vanessa, host of Sex, Please. Thanks for listening to us on SoundCloud. For copyright reasons, we can't play our Get It On song here, but we'd like to invite you to listen to us live Wednesday nights on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles or live streaming at kpfk.org. KPFK is completely listener-funded, so please hit the donate button on kpfk.org and mention Sex, Please when you make your pledge. Thank you for listening to Sex, Please. Now back to our show. Welcome back to Sex, Please. I'm Vanessa Carlisle, and you are listening to Safe Harbor here on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We're talking about heterosexuality tonight on Sex, Please. And we've heard from Hannah Blank, who's a writer, historian. She's affiliated with Emory University, and she's the author of Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. We're going to go into another segment of our interview with Hannah in just a minute here. Um, but Danny and I were just talking over the break about the coupling of heterosexuality and the rise of heterosexuality and also the, the way that it sort of dovetails with um, the reinforcing of, of white supremacy in, in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and I, I just I have this quote from Angela Davis that I think might be helpful as we move forward in this discussion. Um, and so Angela Davis points out that in the early 20th century, white women were learning that as mothers, they bore a very special responsibility in the struggle to safeguard white supremacy. After all, they were the mothers of the race. The coupling of sexism and racism was mutually strengthening. Um, so this point that Angela Davis makes is is really interesting. I think it's it's important to remember that when we talk about heterosexuality, we're talking about we are not talking about interracial relationships, no. actually. We're talking about heterosexuality as it was practiced by 
particularly white people, and that we're talking about heterosexuality as it dovetails with white supremacy, because heterosexuality was a way for the for the state to regulate marriage, regulate um, industry through marriage, and to make sure that property and um, and corporate interests were were staying controlled. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think introducing introducing the concept that heterosexuality is is not a natural it's not a it's not just a naturalized form of how we make babies it's it's a social construct that we've that we've um that we've all been living with for about 150 years Are we ready to hear Hannah Blank? I am. Everyone's like, let's roll the second part of Hannah Blank. <laughs> when I teach uh, my students, I always say, look, sex, god, art and death. These are all areas where people's emotions run the show. And asking people to take a step back and actually think about sex, God, art, or death is really hard. It just is in those those arenas. And there are all kinds of reasons that that's hard. Yeah, the reason that it's so difficult is because these are deeply emotional topics. It's because they are so unexamined. And it's because they're so pervasive. I mean, with all of these things, these are all ideas and all concepts that we get enculturated with literally from day one like you are out of the womb and somebody's putting a pink bow on your head um, or you know putting little like blue diaper covers on you whatever right. it is right you know people we are aggressively gendered and aggressively brought to believe in a, a gender binary that is constitutive of heterosexuality or is believed to be constitutive of heterosexuality literally from the time we draw our first breath. Yeah, so yeah, we absolutely have strong, deep, sort of really primal reactions to that. How could you not? Do you believe that this kind of intense cultural dominance of heterosexuality as a, as a cultural structure, like do you believe that that dominance is inevitable because of numbers because there's more of them than there are of us? Is that is that always going to be a kind of minority voice to be a queer person or an LGBT person? Well, I actually think that that's an economic question. Um, one of the things that marriage, pr- prior to the development of any idea of heterosexuality, so, so prior to the mid um, and late 19th century, one of the things that marriage has always been supposed to do is to control economics and to control economic relationships, not just in terms of um, husbands being the breadwinners, because they certainly have not always been. Most women throughout most of the world have worked most of the time throughout all of history, because, you know, people got to eat and rear children and, you know, grow food and make clothes and things like that. Um, so that, that mythos that heterosexuality is all about this great, you know, white male breadwinner is bogus. And we know that's bogus. Um, but marriage does more than just that, more than just the kinds of economic stuff that we think about in our little contemporary nuclear families. Marriage also controls inheritance. So there are ways in which marriage solves a lot of economic problems. And that's actually one of the reasons that the state really wanted to get involved in regulating marriage. Um, Marriage has not always been something that the state has regulated. Um, You know, up until the 16th century, it was pretty much something where you could walk up to a church and say, hey, priest, um, I want to marry this person. The priest will say, you want to get married? You say, yeah, and they say a few words and pretty much done. In fact, 
you know, for a lot of history, it's possible to even just say, oh, we got married and have everybody sort of take that as writ. And especially if a child was produced and, you know, everybody assumed, okay, well, yeah, you mar- you got married, you consummated the, the wedding, whatever. So um, when the state has a vested interest in organizing um, human relationships, it's usually because the state's getting something out of it. The flip side is also true, that as women and non-heterosexuals become more economically independent, heterosexuality loses some of its power, some of its stranglehold. And then later on, this world-changing, game-changing thing that happens when women start to be able to reliably control their fertility and control their money. When you have both of those things in the same place, you have women who are not stuck with needing to have that state control or that state protection of their economic interests and relationships. So do you think that means people will fall in love differently? I think they already are. I think hookup culture comes directly out of this. Um, This notion that it doesn't have to be, you know, that having sex or having some sort of, you know, having intimate relationships doesn't have to be about this straight linear trajectory um, that goes, you know, you meet somebody, you date somebody, you get serious with somebody, you marry them, right? When you take that trajectory and you say, well, what if I don't have to get into a serious relationship in order to be independent and run my own life and have all of the things that I want to have? What if I don't have to get married to be able to buy a house, to have a kid, to have the career that I want to have? What if there are aspects of getting married that actually aren't so attractive to me because of the other things that I want to do with my life? Then what does that do to this trajectory that we've been presuming for, you know, 140 or so years now? You know, you spend some time together and then eventually you get married and you make that sort of socioeconomic and that cultural commitment to that dyad. You know, it upends a whole lot of things when you don't presume that that's the goal, when you don't presume that that's your end point. I'm curious what you would say to people um, who identify now in, in this, you know, kind of mad, gaga, queer world People who identify as heterosexual now, what do you hope that they could know about themselves or about their place and culture? Um, well, I think one of the things that I encourage straight people to think about is how you got that way. Um, you know, take all of the questions that you know straight people like to ask us queers and sort of turn them on yourself. Um, when did you know you were straight? How did you know you were straight? How did you learn about um, how you're supposed to act as a straight person? Um, how did you learn about the attitudes that you're supposed to have toward um, toward women, toward men, toward romance, towards relationships? Um, I guarantee you, you did not pop out of the womb knowing all of that stuff. It comes from somewhere. And if you think about where it comes from and where it came from in your life, I actually think that that's a really useful exercise for anybody. Yeah. Um, because it's it gives you a lot more clue into who you are as a person and how you function in the world. That was Hannah Blank, author of Straight, the Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. You're listening to Sex, Please. I'm Vanessa Carlisle, and this is KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We are live in studio this late Wednesday night, 
And so if you're interested to talk to us about what you're hearing, please do call 818-985-5735. We're talking about heterosexuality, the surprisingly short history of heterosexuality and how heterosexuality functions in our culture now. And I'm here with Danny Cruz. I'm curious, when you did your straight stint, how did you know you were straight? (laughs) Straight stint. There's stints. (laughs) Yes. Um, I knew that I was attracted to certain uh, people who identified as men. Okay. So I thought that meant I was straight because I had been raised to believe that straightness was my calling. (laughs) (laughs) did your family sit you down and say vanessa naz now that you have approached and over gone over the barrier of puberty we we do believe that it is your calling to be i'm pretty sure it was just all the billboards she saw in in hollywood with all the rom-coms yeah it was the romantic comedies and the christianity and the foundational assumption that um, that one of the most fulfilling things you can do with your life is be a wife. And um, I was definitely given that message explicitly, even though I was given, you know, you can do whatever you want and you should be free and blah, blah, blah. I was given those messages too. But it was very clear to me that being attracted to men was the right way to go. And so when and if I was attracted to uh, somebody who identified as a man, I was like, oh, thank God. And I would like run towards it. <laughs> Because it felt very safe to me to do that. And so I slutted around like crazy, but I definitely felt like, okay, good. See, like the boys and the boys like me and we're going to do fine. Um, And it wasn't until I started having sexual experiences with women and um, and particularly one experience where I had the most profound turn on I'd had so far in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Okay, you need to go into this more details on that. Changes the game. Like yeah. I don't think I'm straight if this is what can happen to me. Right? That was the confusion. <laughs> well, it's very interesting that you use the word safe. Yeah. Um because I heard that especially with um when Doug called in when he was talking about straight acting and you're very straight acting. Um and for a lot of queer people that's become a safety net. It's like, always been a safety, been net. A safety Absolutely. net. Absolutely. Right, yeah. It's I- we're straight acting because that's how you are in polite society. You, and you are when you are in situations where you feel unsafe mm-hmm. and you think if I, you know, there, there, there's all this like quick closeting that we do out in the world to protect ourselves I because uh, some folks don't like us. Sure. And it's it's definitely been part of the skill set that I've developed, you know, as I have figured out how to be more authentically myself, I've also had to figure out how to be more straight acting because they're they're in conflict. Okay. <laughs> right? And so what used to feel like it came pretty naturally to me when I was younger doesn't anymore. And I've had to kind of navigate that and negotiate that. And I, I know I'm not alone in being somebody who's, um, whose sense of sexual orientation and, and sense of self has changed over time. You know, like somebody asked me, when did you when did you know you weren't straight? And I was just like, well, the first time I got really turned on by a female body. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That There was no, no, you know, I didn't really, I, I didn't know before that. And mostly because I was terrified to know. So there was, it was so it was sex for you. Yeah. It was having sex. Because yeah. for me, I don't even, I can't even tell you. I, I mean, forever. And it wasn't about sex. It was about 
romance. I mean, not, not romance. I mean, and we'll talk about it next week in the sex, you know, in childhood and so forth. But it was really like, for me, it was like I had crushes on girls and not on boys. Yeah, but I, I, I had crushes on everybody, though, so I couldn't understand. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to watch the boobs you're as much as my though. dad. You're getting your doctorate. I mean, you're very <laughs> intensely like, you know, you just do it all. I'll just do I'll do anything once, right? But, <laughs> but my dad and I used to watch movies, and there would be sex scenes in them, and I would be into both of the people in the sex scene. And I wouldn't know that that's what was happening. It was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> the fact that you're watching with your dad is kind of amazingly. Yeah. Uh, he's the shit. He's the shit. Your dad is the shit. <laughs> my dad, my dad, the mythical, the mythical being who never feels jealousy. Remember him? That's right. I know. And has he felt any recently? I feel like we should check in with him every few months. Say, are you jealous about anything yet? Just, just, just checking your temp. There, I'll bud. ask him. I'll ask him. What do you think about your heterosexuality, listeners? How did you know? How did you know you were heterosexual? Who told you about it? That's a great question. How'd you get to be that way? We never ask them that. No No. one ever asked them when they felt heterosexual. When did you come out as straight? Yeah. That's what I want to know. Yeah. Like, when was the first time that you let people know that you were in a straight relationship? And did that feel natural and normal to you? Um, call us, 818-985-5735. There's so much to deal with in heterosexuality. There's, like, patriarchy and power struggles and, you know, the problems of of how heterosexuality functions differently if you're rich or you're poor. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the number one thing, I mean, there's many things, but the number one thing is that the expectation to procreate. We expect, you know, you now that you are in a relationship, married or otherwise, with the opposite sex, go make a baby. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, that Hannah Blank talks about in Straight, the book. She's she's very curious about how the state regulation of procreation and and particularly how the Victorian family um, was one of the first times that women really had power over their own procreation. Mm-hmm. And she she sets that up, like, you know, having power over your own fertility. She sets that up as one of the pieces of um, f- power that really starts to dismantle the hold that heterosexuality can have on a culture mm-hmm. if, if women are in control of their own fertility. Um, so we have a call. Hey, Paul from Sherman Oaks. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a frequent listener and frequent contributor to the station. I think it's a wonderful topic. I'm heterosexual. I have a very, to answer your specific question, when did I know? I can tell you exactly when I knew. Cool. 10 years old, and I had an older sister who was six years older than me. So sociologically and in in terms of family systems, she was more like a third parent. And I really looked up to her, and she had this really cool friend. They were very bohemian. These, these 16-year-old girls, they listened to, like, it, it was a different planet. You have to understand, I'm 60, so that was 50 years ago. Rubber Soul had just come out, and there was a very intense us versus them, where the way we live, because I grew yeah. up on Army bases, and my parents were very enlightened people, very extremely liberal people, My and although my dad was in the military and my mom was a nurse, and... My sister's 16-year-old girlfriend had long black hair and glasses, and she was very physically attractive, very, to me, very uh, 
a slender, tall, skinny, cerebral. The memory, the memory is so vivid. This is amazing. Well, this is exactly that sounds like Allie McGraw. She looked at me and she said, they, they, were, they were drinking Coke and smoking cigarettes in the house, which was just like... Holy moly. They, they, they were actually having a cigarette in my sister's bedroom. And I thought, this is really scary. They're smoking in the house. This is really intense. And she looked at me and she said... Wait, who looked sister, at you? Who looked at you? Yeah, let's get that my clear. Sister, my sister's friend. Okay, the friend. I can't remember. I, we moved around so much I can't remember her name. But anyway, she looked at me and she said, do you want a sip? And she handed me her Coke, right? And I took a sip of the Coke and I went, thanks. Then she took a drag off her cigarette and she, she, she said, watch this. And she blew the cigarette smoke through the straw into the Coca-Cola and it bubbled up out of the glass like a witch's cauldron. <laughs> and I was like, cool party to- trick. <laughs> Well, I, I was like, I never want to be without this person ever again. <laughs> and then she said, have another sip. This is a stinger. This she is an adorable story. Well, wait, it gets better. I took a, a draw off the straw after she had exhaled the cigarette smoke through the Coke, and it tasted horrible. Ew. And, and they got a big laugh out of it, right? <laughs> As the English say, they took the piss out of me. They teased me. She got me, right? And which... Indicates a very interesting thing. Heterosexual males, remember, we, we're very um, easily... Uh, I, there's a basic premise in, in male heterosexuality where you see these really powerful guys that are brilliant, like fully actual. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you go on, I'm not interested in your generalizations. I just want to hear what happened next. Well, I just I was like hooked for the rest of my life. That's the <laughs> <architecture>. Yes! <laughs> really, really cerebral, you know, witchy, tall, skinny, really bookish. Um, it created an archetype for me. Yeah. I think that's I mean, beautiful because it means that you were attracted to you were attracted to power and you were attracted to humor and you were attracted to things creativity. that Yeah, I think that's awesome. The unknown, mystical. Do you think that the first type that you're attracted to becomes your archetype for a time? Like your first crush, whether you're at 5, 10, 15, and then you're constantly looking for that, you know, Maybe because I have adored redheads since I was a school child. And there's a story there, is there not? Well, only that when I was like on summer vacation, there was this one uh, very attractive woman who did the lunchtime uh, weather report and she had this l- lovely beautiful so red you're attracted hair to redheaded women I was well I was like in love with her okay and now I'm into redhead guys right but red but 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 just something about red hair yeah. just gets get symbolic you. thing yeah. I the think, hot weather girl I think there's something to the sort of Freudian notion of a of a originary trauma right but it's not originary trauma in this case it's originary pleasure the sense that uh, one of the early sources of pleasure that you have that's outside of yourself, that's in the form of a sex object of some kind, another person, mm-hmm. that, that that is an imprinting, you know, mm-hmm. that sticks with you. And maybe you get attracted to a lot of different kinds of people over your life or maybe, you know, maybe you stick to one type, but that, that your, your early pleasures do actually mm-hmm. inform 
you. And I think that that's why people get so curious about, like, when did you know you were gay? When did you know? Because they want to know, like, you know, did you play around with your friends when you were a kid? Because I did, and I just want to know if I'm normal. <laughs> that's kind of how yeah. I hear that question. Yeah, true, true, true. <laughs> You know, everyone just wants to know if they're normal. I'm I'm really glad we got to talk to Paul. Bye-bye, Paul. We never really said goodbye. Um, but that was such a cute story. Such, such a cute story. I'm really glad we didn't have to hear about um, the generalizations about heterosexual men. No, but it's nice to hear a, a straight coming out story. You yeah, know? a straight coming out story. I mean, you don't have to come out as straight, though. It's not fair to say come out. Like, you know. Someday, maybe. It's just I just don't think there should be closets at all. So I feel like if if people are straight, they don't have to come out of a closet. They get to just breathe freely from mm -hmm. from from jump. And if you're not straight or if, you know, if you want to do another gender presentation or whatever, whatever's putting you in that sort of outside of of the coerced heteronorm, then then you have a closet because then you have choices to make about fitting in or not fitting in. That's, you know, so I, I, I think that burden is, is real. Absolutely. I've definitely, de definitely right on. felt it about straightness, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, to your point earlier about um, uh, it being rooted or having, uh, you know, um, ties to white supremacy, um, you know, there was a time when interracial sex was queer sex or interracial relationships, even if it was a heterosexual relationship, was queer. Yeah, I like I like that idea. I think it's really interesting. I wonder mm -hmm. what people will think of that. But any relationship that's not part of part of the part of the normal, what if we just thought of them all as queer? Mm -hmm. And and that was just, you know, a way for people to find uh, find points of solidarity. I don't know. You have been listening to Sex, Please. We're talking about heterosexuality tonight, and I think we're a little bit talked out. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's exhausting it's, keeping that up. Straightness really wore me out a lot of my life, and it wore me out tonight, too. Um, <laughs> this is KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake, and everyone else. You can listen to us on kpfk.org. Tonight you heard from Hannah Blank. She's the author of Straight, the Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. And if you want to follow her on Twitter, she is at H-A-N-N-E-B-L-A-N-K. Uh, if you want to keep in touch with Danny Cruz... Uh, Twitter at a Danny Boy. And if you want to talk to Chris Ann Eastwood, Twitter at Big Broad Sports, and of course KPFK uh, Safe Harbor on Facebook. You can find me Vanessa Carlisle at V Carlisle uh, on Twitter, and you can also listen to back episodes of Sex Please if you find us on SoundCloud. www.sound C-L-O-U-D dot com slash. slash sex please. <sighs> Coming up next, the 420 Files with Dinah Leffert. Everybody needs to just go smoke a joint and chill out and have sex with whoever they want, right? All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good night and good fuck.
Hi, this is Vanessa, host of Sex, Please. Thanks for listening to us on SoundCloud. For copyright reasons, we can't play our Get It On song here, but we'd like to invite you to listen to us live Wednesday nights on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles or live streaming at kpfk.org. KPFK is completely listener-funded, so please hit the donate button on kpfk.org and mention Sex, Please when you make your pledge. Thank you for listening to Sex, Please. Now back to our show. Hi, this is Vanessa, host of Sex, Please. Thanks for listening to us on SoundCloud. For copyright reasons, we can't play our Get It On song here, but we'd like to invite you to listen to us live Wednesday nights on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles or live streaming at kpfk.org. KPFK is completely listener-funded, so please hit the donate button on kpfk.org and mention Sex, Please when you make your pledge. Thank you for listening to Sex, Please. Now back to our show.